Father, help us to approach you with deepest reverence. You are beyond the grasp of our comprehension, but not beyond the grasp of our love. Warm us this day with the gospel. Our love is often frost and cold, ice and snow. We need gospel heat. Jesus, you are brighter than a thousand suns. Shine upon our frigid souls. We come under the authority of your word. We came not to make our heads fat, but our hearts full. In this next hour, help us to rejoice in knowing that we are under the care of one who is too wise to err. Holy Spirit in creation, you hovered over chaos and order came to birth. Beauty robed the world and fruitfulness came forth. Move, we beg thee, upon our disordered hearts. May we see our sins as the nails that transfixed Jesus, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, and the sword that pierced him. Come and meet us through your book. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Thank God for the church. That's this sermon in five words. Thank God for the church. Paul uses more than five words. He uses a really long run-on sentence. The only thing Paul loved more than the church was run-on sentences. We will break his run-on sentence down into manageable bites today. Paul isn't speaking about the idea of a church, but rather an actual church, a church he planted. He planted it about three to four years ago, and he's still saying, I love the church. Listen to him in verse four. I give thanks to my God always for you. Let's stop there and camp out a while. Paul states his gratitude, his thanksgiving. This is typical of Paul. He could always find something for which to be thankful. But wait, he's thankful for this church? This church was his biggest headache. The church at Corinth was contaminated and confused. There were divisions, disorders, and difficulties everywhere. The church had all kinds of weaknesses and warts. Which brings us to this truth. Thank God for the imperfect local church. Thank God for the imperfect local church. Here's how the book of Corinthians begins. I thank God for you. Here's how the book ends. I love you. The last verse of the book, my love be with you all. The beginning, I thank God for you. The end, I love you. In the middle, you're messed up. And they were. Walking into this church was like parachuting into a dumpster fire. <laughs> By Paul saying, I thank God for you, he's not ignoring their sin. We put this verse in context. 
He deals with their sin, but does it in love. Beloved, remember to love God's people. There's going to be sin that needs to be corrected. That's a given. But look for the hand of God in people's lives. Look for evidences of grace. The church at Corinth was chaos. No one denies that. But are you failing to see God in the chaos? The church at Corinth was messy. So messy. Embarrassingly messy. But don't miss God working in the mess. And by the way, some of you think you're too messy for the church. This is going to be a good series for you. You, you don't get cleaned up before you become the church. You, you become the church and God cleans you up. You're a work in progress. Every week I speak to pastors. Many of my friends are pastors. They are discouraged pastors. You know why? Because it's easy to look at the church and get discouraged. Kyle, my people aren't serving. They, they are consumers. They want to grab from the church and never serve the church or be inconvenienced for the church. Or, Doc, my, my, my people aren't valuing corporate worship. They aren't committed to the Sunday morning gathering. Kyle, my people aren't growing. I would imagine it would have been easy for Paul to look at the church at Corinth and get discouraged. There's immorality in the membership. Drunk people everywhere. Pride abounding. Factions galore. But somehow Paul learned to look at the mess and praise the God who can clean up the mess. This letter teaches us that Jesus is still working on his church. Paul isn't assuming perfection. He realizes the church at Corinth is in process. Friend, there are times you must fight for the purity of your church instead of leaving it. There are times you must fight for the purity of your church instead of leaving it. Corinth, the perfect church to leave. The perfect church to find fault. Most people don't want a real, living, growing local church because those churches are imperfect. Those churches are in process. They've read some book that sets some unrealistic expectation for a local church. They now have this idealistic view of the church. They have and, and want a wish dream of a local church, not a real local church. They love the idea of a Christian community, but not the real Christian community. I want a perfect church. That will not happen until heaven. Until then, it's going to be messy. The church at Corinth teaches us this. The church at Corinth teaches us this. No matter what is going on in the local church, there is hope if they submit to the word of God. It's bad here, Kyle. It's, it's, it's worse than what's happening in Corinth. As long as there is a willingness to bow before the word of God, there is hope. 
And for the church cynics, let me remind you, you are not above the local church. You are not above the local church. It's real fashionable to be critical of the church. But Paul didn't throw away the local church. He loves the church and rebukes the church and calls her to holiness. If you're leaving the church, you are doing what people in the New Testament were not doing. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too mature for the church. Paul wasn't. I don't need the church, said no Christian in the New Testament. Here's the real reason you don't want to be a part of a local church. You don't want to be a part of a church because then you will be found out. You want autonomy, not accountability. And, and you can blame it on the state of the church or you can try to spiritualize it, but you would be a unicorn in the New Testament. I'm a Christian, but outside of the local church. That's like saying, I'm married, but I'm not coming home. How prideful, how prideful for you to say, the structure that God has designed for my spiritual growth and advancement, I don't need it. The church is imperfect and indispensable be committed to God's local church for the long haul be committed to God's local church for the long haul how often there are birds that fly into a church but never tarry long enough to build a nest mere curiosity brings them and a new curiosity carries them elsewhere there are people that join this church and I know they will be gone in three years. I know it. That's their pattern. I can point out the pattern in the membership interview but still it inevitably happens. I say, you have this pattern of being in a local church for a little while then jumping to another one. Are you willing to commit to FFC for the long haul? Oh, yes! Kyle, yes! I love the exposition. I love the music. I love the people. I love the reverence. And they do for about three years. Beloved, be like Paul and love the church for the long haul. There, there is more church swapping going on in our culture right now than any other time in history. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. The greatest cause for rejoicing among Christians is grace. First, thank God for the imperfect local church. Now, Thank God that salvation was freely given to undeserving people. Thank God that salvation was freely given to undeserving people. Notice, this grace was not earned. It was given. 
Grace appears 155 times in the New Testament. And 110 of those are from Paul. The church is a community formed by grace. The cross cuts off any ground for self-exaltation. Grace takes away your ability to brag. Human achievement means very little to Paul. He rejoices in divine achievement. What God did in them. God's grace is his love without strings. See, man cannot escape or atone for his own sin. He must have grace. And you can never repay it. That's what makes grace, grace. Grace is a free gift, not a loan. We are indebted to God. You can never, ever pay it back. Because of grace, you don't need to merit salvation or earn it or work for it. Those of you here this morning that are non-Christians, no one here earned salvation. That is not how we became Christians. We became Christians because God gave us grace. We can take no credit for it. It is the work of God. And you say, yeah, Kyle, but, but a lot of people in your church, they, they live holy lives. Good. I'm glad you've noticed that. Because this grace leads you to say no to immorality and yes to purity. Verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how many times the word gift was mentioned. This was a gifted church. And what I mean by that is that God gave them gifts for the function of the church. Your gifts are not about you, but were given to you for the building up of the body. If you have gifts, don't be prideful in your God-given aptitude. Gifts can't be attributed to you. They were given to you. You didn't earn them by your spiritualness. He's the gift giver. We are the gift receiver. There are two particular gifts mentioned. Speech and knowledge. In Greek, logos and gnosis. Gifts of utterance, gifts of understanding. Both of these receive in-depth treatment later in the book. Paul just mentions them here and waits until later to dive deep into them. And I will honor that development. I will not drill deeply in them until Paul drills deeply in them. This verse is not about how the gifts can be abused. Does that happen later in the book? Yes. But the problem wasn't the gifts. It was their attitude toward the gifts. But that's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is that God gifts his church. These are grace gifts. Verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The church at Corinth is living proof of the gospel. Their Christian life is a, is a cosmic sermon preached to the world. Do you see Paul finding grace in this church? 
The testimony of Christ is confirmed in you, Corinth church. I see evidences of grace. Even though these believers were struggling and, and stumbling, Paul was able to see them through the lens of the gospel. And even in their sin, he was able to recognize God's grace at work in them. Verse 7, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the truth. God enriches his church to function properly. God enriches his church to function properly. We aren't missing anything here to run well. We aren't lacking something that's desperately needed. And I know that because if we were, then by implication, God has failed to gift his church. All we need, God has given to us. We are about to enter a season in which we're going to see this gloriously displayed week after week. Everything required for us has been given to us. We lack nothing. There is nothing absent from this local church that is needed in order for us to walk worthy of the blessed gospel we proclaim. The church at Corinth, as crazy as they were, Paul says, you have been gifted. Is there any other group in the world that has everything they need? No. The world tells you that. Advertising agencies capitalize on that. The local church is the only group on earth that has everything they need to function properly. We are rich in gifts. Corinth was a gifted church, but notice they were also a waiting church. Verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The climax of all history is Jesus' final revealing. Jesus came the first time to form his church. He will come a second time to gather his church. We don't wait in apathy, but in, in positive hope. Paul is the eschatological herald here. He's always pointing people to the second coming of Christ. Always striking that eschatological note. It seems like there's something about teaching on the second coming of Christ that keeps the church steady and on track. The second coming of Christ is not a doctrine to scare non-Christians. Rather, it's a doctrine to steady Christians. Actually, I guess it's not either or, it's both and. The final act of, of redemptive history is at our doorstep. Jesus is coming, and he's going to take care of all of this. Now, we are only in verse 7, but I want to pull something out that, that I think is vital. In the first nine verses of the book, Jesus is mentioned nine times. Nine references to Christ in nine verses. Jesus is mentioned in every single verse. Paul is saturating his letter with Christ. He's centering his teaching on Christ. He wants the church to get their eyes back on Jesus. Which leads us to this principle. When a church is falling apart at the seams, they need Christ-centered teaching. When a church is falling apart at the seams, they need Christ-centered 
Christ-centered teaching. There are lots of problems in this church. Have you read the book? There are lots of problems in this church. I mean, it's going to take Paul a lot of sermons to straighten them out. He needs a marriage series, a parenting series, a serving series, a giving series. Oh, wait. No. Paul is convinced that when he preaches Christ, it feeds the church with everything they need. Paul didn't rush to relevance. He rushed to Christ. Do you see the centrality of Christ in Paul's teaching? Not the centrality of topics. When you have marriage problems, you need to see Christ clearly. When you're battling anxiety and depression, you need to see Christ clearly. When you are navigating single life, you need to see Christ clearly. When you are hurting and you feel alone, you need to see Christ clearly. When you are battling sin and, and you need help fighting it, you need to see Christ clearly. And you say, Kyle, that's too reductionistic. That's too simple. No. That's the centrality of Christ. Christ is the answer. My most pressing task every Sunday is to get you before the God-man. To lift up Christ and have all eyes on Him. The best thing about good preaching is not its novelty, but its faithfulness. Faithfulness to proclaiming Christ from all the scriptures. Ian Murray, Ian Murray heard Martin Lloyd-Jones hundreds of times and was asked by someone, what do you remember most about Martin Lloyd-Jones' preaching? Murray said, the wonderful thing about great preaching is you soon forget the one who is speaking. Verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end? Who is the who? Church, who is the who? Who is the who? Find the who in the previous verse. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. Now, let's meditate on this doctrine. Paul, like a good preacher, is telling his people, you're going to make it to the end. You're going to persevere because Jesus will carry you through. He has astonishing confidence in their future. None that are truly born again will ever fall away. What God begins in us, he will finish. God will keep us to the end. God will keep us to the end. Now they were a gifted church. But God, not their giftedness, will bring them to the end. He's not asking you to run to the end. He's just asking you to run today. He'll get you to the end. He is the one who initiated the power to begin the race. And he is the one who gives the power to finish the race. The basis for their making it is not their moral performance on earth. But God's unstoppable faithfulness in heaven. God will keep us to the end. Verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He promises to preserve believers until the day of Jesus Christ when his preserving is no longer needed because it is complete. We stay saved because God stays our salvation. This is God's promise of perseverance until the end. So dear one who doubts your salvation, when believers sin, God doesn't unchild them. When he gives his spirit to you at the moment of conversion, there is never a time in which he will take that Holy Spirit from you. Get your soteriology right. If you were not responsible for attaining salvation in the first place, how could you be responsible for keeping it? Notice verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will present us guiltless before the Father. Jesus will present us guiltless before the Father. The day is coming when these Corinthians will be presented blameless, guiltless. That, that's mind-boggling, isn't it? Now, sure, there were some posers in this church. They will not be presented guiltless. They were never gods to begin with. They were pretenders. They were with us, but not of us. But those who were of us, those Christian Corinthians, those messy people, will be presented guiltless before the Father. Well, that's not fair. I know. That's grace. You don't stay guiltless by your work. You, you can't work for this guiltlessness. Jesus supplies this guiltlessness. And let me tell you how that works. When you become a Christian, God the Father gives you one thing and, and God the Son gives you one thing. God the Father gives you the person of the Holy Spirit to indwell you. The Holy Spirit does not leave you. You can't get more of him than you already have. He's in you. God the Father gives you the Spirit. God the Son gives you his righteous life. The life Jesus lived on earth, that perfect one, that sinless one, that becomes yours. Jesus wraps you in his righteousness. So when God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfect life. Church, it's important for you to understand that Jesus doesn't cover your sinful garments with his righteous garments. No, you take off those sinful garments and give them to Christ. He wore them on Calvary and paid the penalty your sins deserved. You should have worn that sin before the Father, but instead you wear the righteousness of another. That's grace. This passage is dripping with grace, oozing with grace. You're about to leave with grace all over your face. <laughs> Saving grace, verse 4. Enriching grace, verse 5, 6, and 7. A persevering grace, verse 8. Cleansing grace, verse 9. Blameless, you will stand before God. There's an absence of a charge. You will be exempt from any accusation. 
there will be nothing to lay against you. We are legally blameless based on Christ's account. That is why our hope is not in our achievements, but in His. Verse 9, God is faithful. Let's stop here. God is faithful. Bless His holy name. He is faithful. God can be trusted. He's reliable. In the original, it's like this. Faithful is God. This is not a book about the Corinthians' unfaithfulness. No, 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 no. It's a book about God's faithfulness. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into a fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the word called. You were called into this fellowship. This call came from God. It originated with God, not with man. You were called by him and you responded. It starts above and continues below. He summons people to believe and he will sustain that belief. He will sustain it through his faithfulness. You are called into a fellowship, a communal participation with Christ and with each person in Christ. God will bring us home through this fellowship and through this fellowship. The God who saved you puts you in a fellowship that will help bring you home. The God who saved you puts you in a fellowship that will help bring you home. You are part of these other members making it to the end. You are part of me making it to the end. In this local church, we fellowship in the Son, in Christ. Now, here's how I want to apply this text. I want to give you five ways to better love and serve your imperfect local church. I want to give you five ways to better love and serve your imperfect local church. Your church, this group of people that God has designed to help you make it to the end. Five ways to better love and serve your imperfect local church. Number one, learn to value the church Jesus Christ died to save. Learn to value the church Jesus Christ died to save. You can grow in your understanding and love for the church. Let me say that again. You can grow in your love and understanding for the church. Paul did. He used to persecute the church. Now he's thanking God for the church. You can make that transition as well. You used to be a critic of the church, and now you serve in one. You used to think you could work for God better outside of the local church. But now you value church membership. Parachurch organizations are fine until they replace the local church or devalue the local church. Now that's true of the navigators and the U.S. Army chaplaincy or any group 
that isn't the local church. And by the way, let me just commend you on loving your church well. I don't preach this because you're not doing it well. I preach it because it's implied in the text. I do want to warn you of this. It is possible. You think with me because this, uh, how I phrase this is probably complicated. It is possible to propound a high view of the church and all the while have a relatively low view of the church to which you belong. It is possible to propound a high view of the church and all the while have a relatively low view of the church to which you belong. I've seen it in seminary teachers, songwriters, theologians, book authors. They love the church in theory, but not in reality. And I'm always saying, don't just write songs for the church. Belong to a church. Don't just teach church leaders. Belong to a church and submit to those leaders. We have a lot of people here that are always moving in and out because of the nature of their jobs. Those of you who will only be here for a time because of your job, let me encourage you. When you move, find a healthy church and get involved right away. If you can control where you are moving, center your move around a local church. We've had people move states to come to this church. Move across the country to come to this church. Find a job near a healthy church. Five ways to better love and serve your local church, your imperfect local church. Number two, highly value the corporate worship service on Sundays. Highly value the corporate worship service on Sundays. Why should you highly value the corporate worship service on Sundays? Because there wasn't a New Testament Christian who didn't. Value the corporate gathering. Here are a few ways you can do that. Attend on Sundays. You know who didn't hear this letter read publicly in the church at Corinth? Those who were not there that Sunday. Which would have been about zero of them because they would not allow anything to keep them from gathering on the Lord's Day. Your habits shape you. If you're hit and miss on Sundays, it will negatively affect your spiritual health. It's a major part of your spiritual growth. A few ways to value corporate, the corporate gathering. Attend on Sundays. Sit well under the preached word. Listen submissively. Recognize these words. Dropped from the lips of God. They are the breath of God. This is not some old book. These are breathed out words from God. Listen alertly. Stay invested. Fight to stay alert. Listen with intent. If something is good, say amen or uh-huh or oh my. Consider taking notes. I know our worship guide doesn't provide enough space. Get a journal. We have people in our church who have a, a journal for each book series we do. 
Don't check out mentally by checking out your phone. Love God's word more than whatever is calling you on the device. Listen submissively, listen alertly, listen biblically. Test, test my words by God's word. Worship the Lord with your mind. And not a lot of churches do a good job at that. Engage the mind. Think and think deeply like the Bereans. Listen obediently. Don't just come to hear the word. Come to do the word. Be a doer of the word. What from this text can I live out tomorrow? A few ways to value the corporate worship service. Attend on Sundays. Sit well under the preached word. Prepare Saturday night for Sunday morning. Guard Saturday nights. Get a lot of sleep so you're not tired. Sanctify Saturday nights. Don't stay out late. Lay your clothes and your kids' clothes out Saturday morning so you're not arguing about what to wear on Sunday morning. Read the text that is being preached. Let it be marinating in your soul. On Sunday morning, prepare for the worst to happen. Your oldest will stab your youngest in the eye with a sharp object. Put a patch on that boy and come on. And then blame the nursery workers. He had two eyes when I dropped him off. 90%, and this is not an exaggeration, 90% of the hectic you can take care of the night before. The other 10% expect it and determine for it not to keep you from gathering with your local church. A few ways to value the corporate worship service. Attend on Sundays. Sit well under the priest's word. Prepare Saturday night for Sunday morning. Realize watching the corporate gathering online is not a replacement for being there in person. Realize watching the corporate gathering online is not a replacement for being there in person. And I know what some of you are thinking, especially more than half of you who are, who are younger than I am. You're like, this is Kyle being a grumpy old man again. <laughs> I, I, I am not the old guy that's yelling, get off my lawn! This is biblical counseling in public. It's not legalistic. It's recognizing the importance of the gathering. Charles Spurgeon, my brother from another mother, said in the 1800s, well, before I quote him, let, let me give you the context. No TV or internet in that day. So newspapers were huge. And newspapers would print Spurgeon's sermons. Here's what Spurgeon said on Christians staying home and reading his printed sermons. And I quote. There are some who even make a bad use of what ought to be a great blessing. Namely, the printed sermon. By staying at home to read a sermon because they say it is better than going out to hear one. Well, dear friend, if I could not hear profitably, meaning if he was deaf, if I could not hear profitably, I would still make the gathering for the worship of God. It is a bad example for, the, for a professing Christian to absent himself from the assembly of the friends of Christ. 
He continues, There was a dear sister who used to attend here with great regularity, although she could not hear a word that was said. By the way, we, we, same here at Faith Family Church. I send my manuscripts to this particular lady. But she said it did her good to join in the hymns and to know she was worshiping God with the rest of his people. I wish that some who stay away for the most frivolous excuses would think of this verse, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Hebrews 10.25 Amen, Spurge. Amen. Now, I could take his quote and change the word printed to video or recorded. And it seems we have a similar problem today. There is no virtual church or internet church. There's only the gathered church. When I hear pastors welcome before actual people, when, when I hear pastors welcome the online campus... I want to puke. There is no such thing. You gather actually, not virtually. Did, did you notice that we don't put the whole service online? You notice that, that we don't live stream at this church. Only later in the day do we put the sermon part up. Because when you miss, we don't want you to feel like you were here. That's bad training. We want you to gather actually, not virtually. One theologian said, you don't want to be with your wife virtually on a honeymoon. You want to be with her actually. You don't, want, you don't want to gather with your kids virtually on Christmas morning. You want to be with them actually. Even during COVID, when our country shut down and stopped being productive, and I'm not bitter about it, even during COVID, when our country shut down and stopped being productive, we did put our sermons online with songs during that time. But we made it very clear, we are not having church online. Here's a sermon and some songs you can sing with your family, but this is not the gathered worship. This is not a replacement. We did not have gathered worship for eight weeks or ten weeks or however long it was. Now I can tell you how the elders here highly value corporate worship services. When we get opportunities to speak in other places, 99% of the time, we turn it down. Great churches invite us to speak, but we are highly valuing worshiping with our local church. Amen. Five ways to better love and serve your imperfect local church. Number three, like Paul, pray for your imperfect local church. Like Paul, pray for your imperfect local church. You say, well, where is he praying? Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Pray for your local church and let them hear you pray for them. Paul said he prayed here in verse 4, always. Not meaning at every moment, but rather constantly, frequently, normally. Not spotty or occasional, but regular and always. Do you, do you regularly and always pray for your imperfect local church? They hear Paul praying for them. They hear their spiritual father praying for them. World-renowned New Testament scholar D.A. Carson 
wrote about his dad, Tom Carson, who was a pastor of a, of a tiny church in Quebec, Canada, for several years. D.A. writes, in one section about his father's prayer habits, he says, when the door to the study was shut, we kids knew we were not to intrude. Dad's practice in private prayer was to kneel before the big chair that he used and prayed loudly enough to vocalize so as to keep his mind from wandering. Outside the door, we could hear him praying even if we could not hear what he was saying. I can remember countless days when he prayed for 45 minutes or more. Strange to tell, at this juncture, I cannot recall days when he didn't. Jim, D.A. Carson's brother, recalls barging in on dad's study unannounced, finding him on his knees praying and then quietly backing out. Jim wrote, But the image has always remained with me, especially during my latter rebellious teen years. While walking away from God, I could not get away from the image of my father on his knees praying for me. It is one of the things that eventually brought me back. Dear one, the church at Corinth could not get away from the image of Paul on his knees praying for them. What book of the Bible have you gone through recently just praying those verses for your local church? Pray for your church. Five ways to better love and serve your imperfect local church. Number four, volunteer in a place where you are not most gifted, but most needed. Volunteer in a place where you are not most gifted, but most needed. Don't wait on the sidelines for the perfect opportunity to, to jump in. Arrange chairs. Clean coffee spills on the floor. Because you, you spill more coffee than any church I've ever seen in my life. Arrange chairs, clean coffee spills on the floor, bring a meal to someone, work in children's ministry, work in children's ministry, work in children's ministry. And all God's tired people said, Amen. Uh, Tim Keller talks about people who have a consumer mindset regarding the church. They come to plunder the benefits without giving of their time or money. In the church, there are responsibilities and privileges. Remain eager to serve. Ask your, your, your leaders where there are needs. At all times, we keep a list. Be aggressive in looking for needs. Before and after the service, an alone person in the gathering is an emergency. Friends can wait. And let me throw this in there. Some people pick a church. They pick a church based on how they can serve in that church. Wrong. Well, they don't let me sing in this church, so I'm going to take my gifts over there. No teaching opportunities here, so uh, I'm gone. That's you choosing how to serve and where to serve. Be open for where the greatest need lies. Now, the last application could come across as very self-serving because I'm one of the leaders of this local church. But I'm not going to skip over it because the church needs to be taught this. Number five, love your church because you have humble shepherds that pour themselves out for you. Love the church because you have humble shepherds that pour themselves out for you. Some shepherds... 
I've met them and you have met them. Some shepherds are impressive in public and disappointing in private. That is not the case with your pastors. You have pastors that love you, that labor for your holiness, that labor to tell you that Christ will keep you to the end. Your pastors go through rhythms of extremes in very short periods of time. We are there in the most heartbreaking tragedies. And then in the next moment going to celebrate something wonderful like a birth or an answer to prayer. Always in those rhythms of extremes. The church calls the shepherd the way the sea calls a sailor. It will batter and bruise us. And we will love it for that reason. Every Christian needs a shepherd. Every Christian needs a shepherd. Which is why God gave shepherds to his local churches. Thank God for the church. It is a joy to pastor this church. It is a joy to be in a church that excels in all five of these ways. I thank God for this imperfect church that constantly looks to a perfect Savior. Beloved, with Paul, let's say we love the church. Father, Thank you for this local church. We are imperfect and in progress. But you will sustain us until the end. And you will present us guiltless based on the righteousness of Christ.